This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Her to read her piece at the top of, of today's event, to share that with us, accompanied by a piece of music which has been specially commissioned for the project by soundscape designer Danny Crass. And the full publication of essays will be available in the signing tent later on. So, do you know, may I ask you to take it away? You may. This is the bit... So, this time last year when I was here talking about the gender games with CN Lester, some quite transphobic people came to my event, presumably to trip up me and CN, who CN is, is genderqueer, and... And then they went away and released this horrible podcast saying that I was like a terrible misogynist and stuff. And, and I felt really sad because I'd had a really good event and I really loved doing events with CN and, and it was really sad. So I suppose this is my response to people like that. And it's called Freedom of Speech is Not Freedom from Consequence. It's not transphobic to have concerns about transgender people say various users of Mumsnet, outwardly liberal newspaper columnists, some politicians and certain bigots who attempt to slide a wedge between trans women and feminism. Hold up. What do they think the word transphobia means? If you swap the word concerns for fears, it is literally textbook definition transphobia. Of course, that's linguistic gymnastics. I guess you're either prejudiced or not. Prejudice is so much more than a word. It's a gut deep, gurgling suspicion or malice towards a person or a group. These prejudices are perhaps based on nothing, on experience, on tradition, on tabloid rumors. Whatever the origin, Taking that prejudice and applying it to countless nameless people is a phobia. If you have concerns about a whole bunch of transgender people, the vast, vast majority of whom you don't know and have never met, you are transphobic. If you have met me and you still think I'm a cunt, that's fine, I guess. Amongst a litany of things transgender people are baselessly accused of, we are often told we are silencing our critics. If only I could. They're so fucking noisy. It's half my Twitter feed, honestly. And yes, the refrain of bigots everywhere. What about freedom of speech? I always feel this is a last resort. When you have nothing left, it's the crossed fingers behind your back or the gotcha moment on a hidden camera show. One can rationally expose prejudice and discrimination. You can fall back on laws and legislation, but, oh wait, what's that? Freedom of speech, you say? Oh great, I guess you win then. You got to speak. Of course, debates around freedom of speech often lead to a brand of sixth form debate team mental yoga in which if we silence homophobia, Islamophobia, transphobia and racism, we risk villainous despots using those rules to similarly restrict political prisoners, amnesty, protests and heaven forbid trans columnists from having a voice. That's a valid point. 
and the reason why laws and legislation around freedom of speech should be closely monitored by organizations like Amnesty, the UN, and governments. Restricting hate speech is clearly defined and set out in law. You cannot incite violence on those with protected status. That includes transgender people because we are especially vulnerable to violence and harassment. On a personal level, this means you, broadly speaking, have the right to say whatever half-assed thought pops into your head. What no one has the legal or moral right to is freedom of consequence. Such a thing does not exist. If you say outrageous things which promote violence, such as revealing the address, schools or workplaces of transgender people, you can and should expect to feel the long arm of the law. This is letting violent bigots know where to find their victims. If you're caught on camera speaking at foam-at-the-mouth rallies in which you advocate violence against trans women, expect to get a knock at the door from the police. Another, and perhaps more likely consequence of publicly spouting off about trans people, is you might find some theatres, universities, or other art spaces start to withdraw their offers of hosting you as a speaker. This has become known as no platforming. Yes, this is a consequence of your words. If your words are unappealing, you can't blame people for finding you unappealing. This is especially true if hosting a bigger is going to bring about consequences for the venue or organization as a whole. Why would a space or company wish to associate itself with ass-backwards, hateful views? It bears repeating. Freedom of speech never came with a guaranteed booking at a university or literary festival. You have no right to a platform. It is the platform's freedom of speech to say no. Social media is one such platform. They too have the right and freedom to decide who gets to use them. Again, no one ever said your freedom of speech included the right to go into someone else's home, in this case an online home, and say utterly abhorrent shit. If someone came into my house and started saying ghastly prejudiced things, I would ask them to leave. Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey, among others, created these platforms. They do not belong to us, has been made, as has been made abundantly clear in the way our data has been harvested from within these sites. For me, a trans woman living in the UK, this isn't just about my freedom of speech. It's about my freedom, full stop. We're being silenced, whine people who advocate the restriction of my actual movements, my access to medical care, my ability to possess a birth certificate, my right to simply exist in this skin. But it's not true. No one is sliding a gag over their mouths. Instead, it's just that some people are saying, you can't say that shit here. Or, you're a bigger. And that's very different. That's our freedom of speech. And I am absolutely free to think 
you're transphobic. Thank you. And can we have another clap for Dan and the music, please? How cool was that? That was sick. Thank you. It was amazing. And I do hope you'll pick up the Freedom Papers. It's a really powerful collection. That's just one snapshot of Juno's piece, but a really brilliant collection. One thing I'm really pleased to see in the Freedom Papers is that it gives a place and a voice to writers who write for adults, writers who write for kids, writers who write really for anybody. But I think quite often those don't meet, um, particularly writers for young people. But we might come back to that. What that does, though, bring us very neatly onto is Juno's new book, Clean. Um, a very, if I might say, a very pretty book it for is. a very gritty subject. Mm. And I loved something I read in The Guardian. Um, they said to you, Juno, I think as a question, drugs, sex and swearing feature highly in Clean. So what makes it a YA novel? So here's a question. Has anyone from The Guardian ever read a YA novel before? Apparently not. I mean, I think Clean was a really interesting one. I think because, because I'd done the gender games and that sort of moved me towards an adult audience and Transformation Street was an ITV. I think by the time Clean came out, I'd reached a place where I was a little bit better known, perhaps. And so I think there was just more interest around me and whatever it was I was working on. And the fact that Clean had kind of perhaps gone to the grittier end, because Margot and Me, my last book, was actually possibly my, my best behaved novel in some ways. And I think after that, I really wanted to do something that did push some buttons and push my buttons as well. You know, I'd behaved myself for six novels. You know, I'd done what editors had told me. I'd watched my mouth. Clearly, I have a potty mouth. Sorry, I was going to warn the audience about swearing before we started, but then I didn't. Trigger warning. I mean, we probably should actually give a trigger warning because actually Clean is a really difficult book. Um, and I knew that I wanted to really go there but as you point out i think i don't know at what point into adulthood we forget what it was like to be a teenager and how how triggering being a teenager is what what how how near the knuckle those firsts can be and i think that's that's why ya is so compelling because very often we're dealing with the big firsts and obviously clean deals with a lot of firsts for lexi have you ever, as an author writing for a YA audience, felt that you've been censored by your editor or by the industry or even maybe a bit more subtly by the gatekeepers at the end of the, the road? I mean, I'd like to say no, but yes. Um, I remember going, so this is going way, way back to Hollow Pike when I was writing Hollow Pike, and I think I got my book deal in 2011, and Liz, the main character, wasn't allowed to have a period because it was considered not aspirational. <laughs> I mean, I can't. I can't. Um, still, I mean, sometimes, you know, editors will say, you know, Juno, that is just too much. And if more than one person is saying that, then you kind of have to listen. And sometimes because it's jarring, it takes you out of a scene. And there were bits, because obviously Lexi is this real contradiction. So she's a 17-year-old billionaire who is also a heroin addict in a rehab clinic. And, but she has this very dark, wry sense of humor about her predicament. But there were times when my editor pointed out, well, yes, we know that Lexi is very wry and sarcastic, but actually this is slightly distracting. 
from some quite emotional stuff, can we sort of stay in, stay in the moment a bit more and not have her? So some, but but no, that I have I have been. But sometimes not in the ways that you think. So of course, this book is gay, which is wildly graphic in some ways, wasn't censored at all because when when I said I wanted to do that book, you know, I said if we're not going to do this literally genital warts and all, there's just no point in doing it because other books like that exist. There are other nice, nice books about growing up. There are other nice books about being LGBT. I wanted to do something that, you know, was, was everything. Um, but yes, but it's the weird, the weird things like Liz London's period where I have been held back held in the back. past. For the, just the oddest. I don't think that's what I expected yeah. you would say there. Well, coming back to Lexi then. So, so for those of you who, who've, who've, who've not been introduced to clean, as, as Juno says, follows Lexi through a, a rehab journey and quite a fabulous rehab facility, it must be said, um, the rehab elements of it aside. But I wanted to ask, was she fun to write, Lexi? I thought there was something kind of really fabulous about her, that wry sense of humour, her the sort of excesses of her life. And you know, she's almost she's kind of a bit mean girl. She's a bit she's a bit fabulous. Did you was it was it hard to balance the grittier aspects and the sort of joy of her? Mm. I think so that was when Clean fell into place for me. So Lexi had been in my head for a while. There had been so I moved to London in 2011. And I moved to the Winstanley Estate, which is about to feature permanently in my next novel. I moved to the Winstanley Estate a week after the London riots, which had obviously very much affected Clapham Junction. Clapham Junction had been badly looted. And so after I'd been ensconced in Clapham for about a year, the court trials started to arrive in the Evening Standard. And there was this blonde girl on the front of the Evening Standard, and she was about 16, 17, she was from Chelsea, very well-to-do family, and basically she'd helped her boyfriend do a smash-and-grab from TK Maxx. Now, this is not a girl who needed to ram-raid TK Maxx, let's be really clear about that. And yet somehow this well-privileged girl had ended up caught up in this kind of violent scene, and so I thought, my God, if there was ever a YA character, it's her. And so she bubbled away, and there was going to be this London-based story about all this poor, sad boy from a council house who gets this Chelsea girlfriend, and it's like Romeo and Juliet, but she's really evil, and he's really good, but he ends up taking the blame. And I was like, this is so naff, and I've kind of read this thing before. And I also felt I wouldn't read that. And I must admit... Don't get me wrong, Margot and me is some of my best writing and that ending kills me, it's so sad and I cry in all the right places but, and I will say this honestly, it is not a book I would have read when I was 16 I would have been like, what is this World War II malarkey, just no um, and then I thought, you know, you need to get back to that you need to go back to just writing a book for you Never mind what you think your editor wants, never mind what you think your agent wants, never mind what you think awards want or booksellers want. Just you do you. And then I realised, well, I wouldn't read a gritty kind of 
council estate gang warfare novel. You know, and that's, you know, other authors, Alex Wheatle, Patrice Lawrence, Melvin Burgess have been doing those books so well, and it's just not me. And then I thought, but what if this girl, what if the thing you liked most about it, this, this obnoxious, privileged nightmare, what if she was taken out of her life and almost incarcerated? And then the clinic came to me, and the clinic was when it kind of fell into place because I realised I could kind of trap her with a whole bunch of other misfits. And if you've read any of my novels, you'll know that I'm happiest when I get that kind of unlikely group of misfits together, be it in Cruel Summer or Hollow Pike or any of them really. And the Clarity Center was really the last straw. And when that fell into place, and I kind of envisaged this first scene where she's, the first scene she's in mid-intervention, her brother has kidnapped her in the back of a BMW and she wakes up and she's on her way to rehab. I just started writing and I just didn't stop. And it was, I did it over about 12 weeks in the summer of 2016. And just, I wrote every single day and just had a blast. Because, you know, I think, to be honest, I wish I was like Lexi. I wish, she has no filter. She just tells people, whereas I try, try to be nice. Whereas Lexi just doesn't. She's just, at least you know where you stand with her, I suppose. One of the things I like about her, and I, I, I clocked it in, in some of the pieces that have been written about the book, is that Lexi has a sex life, and she <laughs> likes sex. And one of the things, I, I saw Judy Bloom years ago, I, I was really excited, and uh, she said that she wrote forever because her daughter said, Mum, will you please write a book where some teenagers have sex and nobody dies? And weirdly, I think, <coughs> in the time since Judy Bloom wrote forever, we've kind of not move mm. forward and quite often a, a lot of why I read is a wee bit of a sex-free zone which I think is, is not really it's not reflective of, of the interests mm. of, of the readership, it's not reflective of the lives and it, is that something you notice in it? Am I reading the wrong things? No, 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 absolutely because and Forever is really important, I read Forever when I was 11 it kind of taught me what sex was but it did um, and I think what's amazing about Forever in particular is that it is a book in which one thing happens. It is a book about a couple. They get together, they talk about having sex, they have sex, then they have sex some more. Then she realises that she's not sure and that's about the end of the book. And, and whereas I think we possibly lost sight of the wood for the trees, kind of, um, which is, I think, over time we forgot what a massive and momentous thing is sex is to, to young people. And that's whether you're sexually active, sexually not active, whether you're gay, bi, trans, asexual, pansexual, you're thinking about sex. Even if you're asexual, you're thinking about sex. And, and it's a big part of your life. And Lexi, I think she uses lots of different things to distract herself from the real causes of her pain. And, and she does, I think, Lexi does have real reasons to be in pain. And she's kind of anaesthetizing herself in lots of different ways, with drink, with drugs, with clothes, with parties, and with, with Kurt, who is, who is an absolute nightmare um, in lots of ways. And, and yeah, I think, I, that, you know, she enjoys sex, absolutely, but Kurt is absolutely the wrong person to be doing it with. And then, and then Brady comes along, and he was interesting as well, because obviously you know, what happens when you fall in love with somebody who can't have sex, you know, because he's a sex addict. And, that, and then that puts a very different spin on sex for Lexi because 
she has to think about, you know, what does Brady mean to her? Because it won't be a sexual relationship. I thought that was a really strong theme in it, that the fact that Brady actually articulates that and can articulate that. But Lexi has that addictive personality and she does kind of see Brady almost as, oh, you know, this is another thing to fixate on. And I thought that it was quite, it's quite a challenge in a YA context for, for just to challenge those relationship tropes, that yeah. the, the sort of the boy's saviour. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm doing... An <clears throat> so after doing Kurt, so at the beginning of the book, Lexi has this dreadful relationship with this guy called Kurt, who's basically her dealer. Um, and having really looked at sort of flagging to my readers, look, this is a really toxic relationship. I mean, it's not in any way based on Amy Winehouse and Blake Sybil Fielder. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think anyone should be able to read this novel and sort of recognise that Kurt is riding a Volkov-shaped gravy train because Lexi is very wealthy. He has access to all the drugs he needs, kind of. Um, so in the next one, in Meat Market, as well as it being a novel set in the fashion industry, um, Yana, the main character, has a lovely boyfriend called Ferdy because I also think something that YA doesn't do very well is we don't often present really healthy relationships mm, yeah. and say this is what a good relationship looks like because I think sometimes you know, we, we, we're getting better at recognising toxic relationships and coercive relationships and abusive relationships but what about modelling, actually, this is what a good yeah. feminist boyfriend looks like kind of and so that's something I want to do with the next novel. Uh, something I liked as well in a YE context is that there are a great cast of characters in the clinic, but all their stories aren't, they're not tied up cleanly. No. And some of the backgrounds are, they don't necessarily reveal, there's one character in particular who doesn't necessarily tell the truth at any point. But I've got to tell you, I'm really worried about Sasha. Did you have an, an end point for Sasha in your mind? No. <laughs> so, I mean, Sasha, um, it's difficult. I wanted to sort of write my tribute to the Angelina Jolie character, the Lisa character in Girl Interrupted, who is so fantastically sort of mercurial and unknowable and, and the the Sasha arrives just when things are getting a bit cosy. A new inmate comes to the clinic and, and she's trouble. Um, but she tells each different patient a different story. And so obviously now we're working on the TV show and, and so the Sasha episode is going to be really interesting so, so we can actually explore all the different versions of Sasha for each lie she's kind of told. But quite deliberately, I didn't decide which one was the truth. So she could be the illegitimate daughter of a conservative politician. She could be the daughter of a um, junkie prostitute in London. You know, each story is viable because, you know, Sasha is so all over the place. But I also yeah, thought it would be way too convenient for you, for you to know what happened to her in the end. So, spoilers. Spoilers. In terms of the other characters in the clinic, I really, they're, they're great bunch of characters did they come <coughs> to you formed and did then you think about what might have taken them to the clinic or did you think well I you know I, I might look at a, an issue like anorexia or I might look at, at, at sex addiction and other other sort mm. of other faces of addiction um it was quite sort of organic so I knew there was going to be so I knew it was going to be quite a nice 
clinic because I visited a few and they exist. There, there's a lot of private facilities out there, not just the Priory. Um, and the, if, if there was like a bit of creative artistic license, it was with the fact that this one caters to, um, I think it's 14 to 25 year olds. In America, there are such facilities that deal with adolescents, not so much in the UK. Um, and so I thought, right, well, here's an opportunity and we can really look at a diverse group of people with, with various different things. But I think what becomes quite clear as well is if, if at the beginning you think, oh, that's the anorexic one, that's the one with OCD, that's the sex addict, I think you very quickly realise that it's never that clean cut because it, it isn't ever that clean cut. I mean, is Lexi in that clinic because she's a heroin addict or is she actually in that clinic because she's de depressed and has crippling depression or massive self-destructive kind of nihilism or something. You know, it's, it's hard to tell. And I think as you get to know the characters, you realise, oh, it's way more complicated than that. I mean, Kendall's the obvious one there. Oh, she's in this clinic because she's dangerously underweight. And she denies it's anything to do with the fact she's transgender. But actually, by the time you get to the end of the novel, how can these things, you know, not be related? You know, how can, you know, a girl who has that kind of relationship with her body, possibly a quite suspicious, combative relationship with her body, how can that not tie into um, a psychological condition where she's prepossessed with how she looks? So it's, so yeah, I think each of them is very, very complicated, but they were allowed to develop as the novel went on. And maybe when I started writing, I did think to myself, oh, right, she's in for this and he's in for this. But by the time I'd spent a year and a half with them, each character had become way more complicated. And the adults, too, are mm. complicated. And again, I think it's quite, in a YA novel, to actually give adults their own concerns, their own lives, their own interactions. I think it, it, it's quite, um, you know, it, it, it's quite disruptive almost. YA tends to sort of still put the adults mm. to one side a little bit. Yeah, and, and Goldstein, Dr. Goldstein, who looks after Lexi and kind of, becomes sort of this father figure, he was the surprise. The other characters had been somewhat mapped out. Um, Goldstein was just kind of going to be this guy, you know, and I sort of, it didn't really occur to me, oh God, she's actually going to be spending a lot of time with him because she's going to be, she has to tell her tale to someone. And quite organically, I just completely fell in love with Goldstein. And obviously, if you watch Transformation Street, you will know that I have had quite a difficult relationship with my dad and have recently become really close with him. And during that period that I was writing it, and so maybe it was, you know, me looking for a father figure as well. I don't know. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm terribly fond of Goldstein. Um, I grew, yeah, I grew to like him very much. Is the island a real... Is it, is it, is it a real world book? Is it, uh, the island felt like a, that, a sort of space out of time almost, mm. which obviously it is to a degree. The, that's the function of rehab. But it, it felt to me, it's almost a heightened world, isn't it? And, and I think heightened is the important thing. I think I read Junk by Melvin Burgess, who was amazing. I read Junk when I was an adult because it was doing the rounds when I was at high school. I was at high school when it won the Carnegie, but... Um, I just found interest just too gritty. You know, Homeless Kids in Bristol was just not my jam. Um, whereas the slightly heightened, and we've been talking a lot about heightened worlds in 
the stuff I'm doing for TV as well. Um, you know, that kind of gossip girl world that Lexi lives in, that absolutely appeals. I was a massive fan of Gossip Girl. I loved it. You know, I loved the OC. I loved Dawson's Creek. I loved Buffy the Vampire Slayer. All heightened realities. Even, I think we could argue that Skins or Hollyoaks are heightened. Mm. You know, and that was always kind of my, my thing. And so... The island, yeah, it was a good excuse to, you know, to ace, because otherwise Lexi would have escaped. I think had this <laughs> stuck her in the Priory, she'd have legged it. She would have got over the fence. So the fact it's surrounded by water meant that she just couldn't get away. Um, but as well, I don't know, and I think <clears throat> I've been doing some work with um, Kate Moss and the Women's Fiction Prize to um, celebrate 200 years of Emily Bronte and Wuthering Heights. And so I've been talking a lot about how I think a lot of writers really aspire to creating a sense of place like Emily did with Wuthering Heights. It does feel like Wuthering Heights and the Moors, you know, are very much a, a character. And it's kind of a cliche to say that, ooh, the location, it's like a character. But I do think it's something that I aspired to. And I think it was true of the farmhouse in Margaret It was true of Piper's Hall in Say Her Name. And I think it was definitely true of the Clarity Centre as well. I wanted it to feel almost a bit Hogwartsy, like it's like this Brigadoon-like place where we can all go and get fixed and then hopefully return healed. I thought also part of Lexi's... Um, she, she, she spends quite a lot of time with the horses um, and Storm, the, the horse in particular, obviously sees a, a sort of um, an opportunity maybe for herself to heal that way. But there was an always sort of joy of, of that very close cohort of, of, of young guys and then the, the, the sort of nature. It had an almost school mm. story. And it's funny you mentioned Harry Potter, which I think is also... Mm. It, there's a nostalgic thing. And I think that, for me, there was something nice about Lexi engaging because I think there's a lot of pressure as mm. well. And Le- Lexi lives a pressured life. Yeah. And was that something that you sort of did... In, was, that, was that something you intentional or is that something I've, I've just chosen to read in? No, I think when, I remember when things got really hard for us at university, we did it, we used to have weekends down at my friend Olivia's house. Um, Olivia, who I wrote Mind Your Head with, Doctor, she's now Dr. Olivia. Um, so we used to leave our university and we used to travel down to Selsey in West Sussex where she lives and her parents have this beautiful house. And what I love about Holly Bond's new book is that um, it's called um, Are We All Lemmings and Snowflakes? Um, they go to a place called Camp Reset. And I think it is that sometimes you need to go away to come back. And, and sometimes you need, I, and I'm always saying this to my friends in London, you have to leave London. Londoners don't leave Lon- London nearly enough. And actually, since I've left London, I really see that. You know, I, I was getting that mentality of why would you leave? Mm. London has everything. And actually, you have to. It's so important to breathe different air. And I think that's what um, the Clarity Centre represents. It's what Camp Reset represents in Holly's book. And I think, yeah, it's why I think we all sometimes need to go and just escape from our lives for a little while. And certainly Lexi definitely does so. It sounds to me that if you live in Clapham, it's particularly important to be able to escape. <laughs> is Clapham <coughs> really oh God, is Clapham. bad? Um, I absolutely crucify Clapham in one scene. Um, oh, Clapham. <laughs> it's of a type. It's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a funny one. What I love about London... OK, the thing... Let's be positive. The thing I love about London is that massive privilege 
grinds up against crushing poverty at every turn and you are never more than two or three streets away from real poverty or real privilege and that I think possibly is what makes London truly unique. I think other big cities and um, even in you know sometimes in Manchester which is huge there are nice bits and there are less nice bits but often they're quite separated whereas or actually ghettoized actually they tend to ghettoize the poor bits whereas in London it's all very much mixed in together Clapham is just a really interesting contradiction I guess in that you've got kind of parts of you know it's very near parts of Brixton very near parts of Stockwell but then you have got this quite leafy Clapham Common like area where it is a bit yummy mummy I lived on Northcote Road, which is incredibly swishy ponytails, Bowden, big double buggies, lots of nannies with kids. Um, and it was, it was really, because I'd just never seen something like that. And of course, this was when I was writing the book. And so it was kind of just really telling. But yeah, Clapham High Street by night, it's feral. And it goes from being this quite leafy, kind of quite nice kind of cappuccino cafe culture and I don't know where these people are coming from, but it's a lot of kind of rugby playing. You know those guys in the red trousers and no socks with like the candy striped shirts with the collars up and they, yeah, oh, and just, oh God, it's just not good. It's like Love Island, but without the love or the island is how I would describe it. A lot of tans, a lot of teeth, yeah, it's quite something. And my next book goes back there as well. But on the other side, so Yana grows up on the Winstanley. So as Lexi's living in this ludicrous penthouse, um, well, the, the, the river separates them, literally. You've got the Chelsea and Fulham on one side, Battersea Council Estates on the other. I was telling you before we came in that I, I, I can't help myself. I always read bits aloud to the people in the room with me. And I read this section about Clapham aloud and then realised that I'd read a sentence involving the word fingering to my father-in-law. And luckily he was able to pretend to be deaf and wander off. So I think we just probably weren't ready to go there. So Clean is going to be part of a three book. It's not a trilogy, but a three book Maybe. Um, so, Meat Market exists in the same world. If you're really, really keen-eyed, if you read the shit out of Clean, you will see there are some overlap with some characters in Meat Market. But Meat Market does its own thing. Um, it's about... It's, it's, I guess it's rags to riches in a way that, I guess, Clean is riches to rags, kind of, for Lexi. Um, then there's going to be some time off. Basically, I mean, I haven't told my agent or my publisher this. I have not written a word of a novel this year. So there, will, there won't be a novel in 2020 I, unless I pay a ghostwriter, I guess, which I would never do. So I, I, do, I don't see how it could possibly happen at this stage, to be honest. Um, so I'm not sure if there will... I, I know what, if there is a third part, I know what it will be. But because I haven't written a single word of it yet, it feels like folly to even mention it, kind of. I don't know what I'm doing next. Then at the risk of asking you another question about a project that you might not want to talk about or might not be quite there yet, did I read that you're doing a Who-verse, a Doctor Who? Oh, yeah, that's totally done. That's Yeah, we can talk about that. Excellent. It's called The Good Doctor. Um, it's out this October. That was an experience. 
I mean, obviously, it's a, dr- it's a dream, isn't it? Because I've been a Doctor Who fan since I was a tiny child. Would I agree to do a book in two months ever again? Oh, my God. It has been fast. Fast, fast, fast. And really difficult trying to spin one plate, which was Meat Market, another plate, which was The Good Doctor, kind of keep them going at the same time. It's been really, really tough. Um, I've done both. Both are finished now. It's done. And so I can go to Australia, safe in the knowledge that everything is finished. But, yeah, I mean, it was getting quite scary. Obviously, I, you know, I... So I finished Good Doctor on Wednesday, and it comes out in less than two months. So I've seen the cover now. It's got Jodie Whittaker on. I mean, writing Jodie Whittaker has been amazing, based on about three minutes of footage that I was allowed to see. Um, I must admit, did I sign up to this project because I was told I would get to meet Jodie Whittaker? Yes. (laughs) Did I get to meet Jodie Whittaker? No. Not yet. Bummer. No, it's nobody's fault. Um, we were sat on a train to go down to Cardiff and there was, it was that brief period in like February where we had a load of snow and they were so behind on filming because of snow. They were just like, we just can't do it. So, um, yeah, I've, I've seen some little, little bits. Um, I think a sniper from the BBC would come in and kill me if I was to say anything about the 13th Doctor. But I do think people are going to really love her. I think it's a real breath of fresh air. I think um, it feels really reinvigorated. It feels like they've dusted it off. I think having a bit of time away is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, And if nothing else, all the feedback from the BBC is that I've really nailed the 13th Doctor, which is really cool, because obviously you want to sort of get it right. But yeah, I mean, what, what a privilege to join this group of writers who've gotten to write for Doctor Who. So. And at this moment, when Doctor Who has finally well, I'm, yeah, I'm the first, up I'm life. the first author to do Jodie Whittaker's Doctor, which is amazing. You know, there's three of us. There's me, Steve Cole, and Una McCormack, and then Naomi Alderman has done a short story as well. But the four of us, we are, we are it. We were the first people. I mean, I mean, the downside of being the first people to write 13 was that we didn't really know what we were doing and that we've not really spent any time with her as, a, as the doctor. But, you know, it's, I think, you know, we got to see a bit of footage and I think, you know, they sort of told us, we got a load of description about her and Ryan and Yasmin and Graham. And, you know, I just hope, I hope I've got it right. Right, it's really hard though because they're not your characters. And I must admit, that was something else I found really difficult. I've always worked with my characters. They're fully mine. I've created them. Yeah, I've, I've never worked... Because even in my Torchwoods, um, with the exception of Captain Jack, everybody was more or less a new character. Um, and so this is the first time. And it's kind of like you've borrowed someone else's toys and you're allowed to play with them, but you know you're going to have to give them back. And that when you give them back, they have to be in exactly the same condition. So you can't really do anything. You can't all of a sudden, oh, no, Yasmin's lost a hand. You know, because then, you know, clearly when we come back to the TV show, Yasmin is going to have both hands, kind of. So um, it's, it's tough. It was a real challenge. And to do it in two months was incredibly difficult. And do you like the idea of other people taking your characters, adapting things, and is that something that, on the flip, that you're Mm. comfortable with, or is it something that would be an issue for you? No, I love it. I mean, the thing is, nothing that I've written has massively lent itself to fan fiction, but I love the the notion of fan fiction. I think fan fiction tends to be with your big genre series, you see, like your Mortal Instruments and things like that. Um, Whereas I've never really done things like that. Um, 
I mean, obviously, writing Doctor Who felt like fan fiction, um, which it was, I guess. Um, but with Clean, the adaptation is being written by an amazing writer called Anya Reese. When I met Anya, I absolutely knew she was the right person for the job. Weird that I wasn't massively, um, I wasn't massively inclined to adapt Clean, and it all happened really quickly. Like we'd sold the TV rights to Clean before we'd sold the book rights. Um, so it was kind of, and they, when Blueprint bought the rights, they were, they were like, well, we have this writer in mind, she's called Annie Reese. she was the youngest playwright to ever be on at the Royal Court, and she was a bit of a wayward teen as well. I was actually a really well-behaved teen, so having Anya write Lexi made perfect sense, and what, what I've read from Anya, it, you know, it's spot on, and clearly we both have pictured Lexi in the same way which is wonderful. Or maybe I just wrote Lexi really clearly so that, you know, I guess she kind of is on the page. Um, but yeah, I mean, Annie's doing a wonderful job. I'm more, obviously, I'm more perhaps cautious about the person who's adapting gender games, a mm. um, writer called Rose Lewinstein, because obviously that's my life, which is probably why I'm not writing it, because obviously there was a real danger that I would write a very flattering version of myself. Um... So, yeah, let's see. That's the one that I'm worried about. God that's knows what Rose is going to write. Fascinating. Because that's how she perceives me, I guess. It's like, mm. But it's all, it, there's always going to be an element of fictionalisation too, isn't there? Oh, so my God, the just... gender games is kind of half made up. I mean, having now written a memoir, you very much show what you want to show and you conceal what you want to conceal. You know, the gender games is exactly the version of myself that I wanted readers to get, you know. And you'll, you'll notice, I mean to all intents and purposes, I don't have a family in the gender games. Well, clearly I do, you know, and they've been a huge part of my life. But I didn't think, actually, they, didn't, they work for public consumption, so I put out there exactly what I wanted to. And I guess that's what Rose has to work with, so... And it's another interesting link back to Lexi, who to some degree, because she's high profile because of the wealth and the background, she doesn't, in some ways, she's sort of seen as public fodder. Oh. And it's, I think that's one of the things she struggles with, isn't it? And I think, you know, I, I don't kid myself, I'm not Lexi, and, you know, I absolutely didn't come from privilege. Um, I think possibly something of me that was in Lexi is the more time, and again, I don't kid myself, I'm famous, but the more you kind of rub up against fame, you know, with some of my friends and some of the opportunities that I've had and some of the things I've been to, you do start to view yourself as a bit ridiculous. When you're sort of standing on a red carpet and you're not, you're not, you're not posing and pouting, so you do kind of float up out of yourself and think, you are absurd. You know, what are you doing? This, this is not real, kind of. And so you kind of... I think Lexi is aware that she's kind of become a caricature. Mm. She's kind of become Paris Hilton, and she hates herself just as much as everyone else. And I wonder if that's why readers have warmed to her, because at least Lex is in on the joke. She yeah. knows she's a joke, kind of. She's very self-aware. Yeah. On that note, um, shall we open up the house to questions? Um, I think, have we got a mic roving around? So if we you'd do. like to ask <clears throat> Juno a question, please stick your hand up and the mic will come out. There's one. Well done, brave soul. I was just quite interested in the way, because obviously in your books, particularly this one, you cover a lot of like issues that affect people in quite difficult 
and specific ways. So I was just wondering how you go about researching what it feels like for people like that and in order to get like an authentic um, portrayal of those issues and people affected by those issues. Yeah, I mean, it's really tricky. I had to make a decision right at the beginning of Clean, which was I decided not to attend um, rehab facilities to meet patients or attend Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous because I just didn't think that was ethically okay. So I have some friends who will always remain nameless. I will never say who's who. But I have some friends who are in recovery groups and go to 12 Steps. And they, I sort of asked for help, and I sort of said, can you tell me what it's like to be a, in a program, and can you point me in the direction of anybody who might be happy to talk to me? Because my big worry from the outset with Clean is, is this realistic that a 17-year-old would be on heroin? I mean, that's some, that's some quite heavy stuff. And actually, straight away, I was meeting with young people who were saying, oh, yeah, this started when I was 13. Not necessarily with heroin, but it started with alcohol, okay, they didn't die, so then they tried something else. And, you know, before you know it, oh, my gosh, this has become a real problem. And that kind of made me want to write this book even more because I kind of wanted to get across this notion that you don't become an addict overnight. It happens very organically. And I think you see with Lexi that, you know, she's, you know, I think it's quite startling, but I think you can understand how she's ended up there. By the end of it, you're like, ah, and that was where it went wrong, kind of. You can kind of see how this would happen. And it does happen to lots of teenagers in regard to the other things. I mean, there are things in there that I have experienced and things that I haven't. Um, but I, I do think something, if you look at Guy, Kendall, Lexi, Brady, something that kind of underpins all of it is anxiety and depression. And that is something that I have experienced. And I've, you know, I've written about that widely. And I think... I guess what all those characters are doing, they're dealing with that core problem in different ways. And, and so I suppose it's almost a bit of a thought experiment for, for me as well. And, and obviously it's tempting for people to ask, are you Kendall? And yeah, there's, there's a part of me in Kendall, but I also wrote Brady and I wrote Guy and I wrote Ruby and I wrote all the characters who look nothing like me as well as the one that does, so... Where are you going now? <laughs> Almost to the same oh, place. Oh, the same place. <laughs> Efficient. Hey, uh, so I just wanted to ask, it seems that you've obviously got quite a quick turnaround with books and you're always writing and you've written many books. Do you find it difficult to delve into a new story, to connect with new characters and do you have some kind of a system or strategy for how you sort of move on from one book, leave that there? and enter this whole other world. Yeah, I mean, my usual strategy has been to do a non-fiction book between each novel, which has worked really well. And I've said this many times, that it feels like the non-fiction writing has always been like a sorbet, which is like, it's like a good palate cleanser to get rid of the voice of one character. But inevitably, a little bit does bleed over. And I really struggled with the transition from clean to meat market. Um, yeah, Meat Market. So I started Meat Market in 2016 and have just finished this week. So um, it's been a long time coming and it took me a much longer time to almost get rid of Lexi. But I think that speaks highly of Lexi. She had such a distinctive and strong voice that I did find her quite hard to shake. 
And obviously I had an absolute blast writing Lexi as well, so it was hard to move on from. But then once, and this slightly happened with Margot and me as well, um, once Yana fell into place, I then went back to the beginning and started again and kind of got rid of the first third of the book. And yeah, Yana had, yeah. I'll talk more about me, Market this time next year. Do you ever fall into thinking they're real and looking out for them when you're places? Oh, all the time, yeah. I mean, you, it is, I mean, being an author is mad. It's ridiculous. You spend huge amounts of time thinking about imaginary friends that you've made up. And by the end of it, especially when, for me, when you're in like the last quarter of a book and you're in that kind of real home stretch, you know, you are spending all your headspace with these people. And then you, you go out with your friends, your real friends, and you're like, oh my God, and then Lexi does this. And they're like, I don't, I don't know who that is. Like, what, who, who? Like, ah, oh, yes, they're the pretend people who live in my mind. I forget. I'm sorry I jumped in there with a question. Does anyone else have one? <coughs> Glad you three are here. Just <laughs> you're the brave people. <laughs> Hey, I didn't want to break the line, so... <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> I was just wondering, uh, when you're writing the book, um, obviously it goes through some like, really dark themes, but some of those situations had the capacity to be much, much darker. And I uh, thought you balanced it quite well. And I was wondering, uh, you mentioned briefly the voice of like, publishers and how you didn't want to listen so much. Uh, what I was wondering is just uh, how do you kind of draw that line when you're writing the books between like, like the readability and the darkness? Um... Oh, I mean, I'm because I'm going to say I think with Clean, I'm not sure I really did draw any lines. I think, um, I mean, Lexi is kind of wild. I mean, there, there's nothing, there's nothing she doesn't do in the book. Um, I think. Are we entirely safe in this venue? <laughs> just, just checking. It's like Wizard of Oz or something, and now we're in Oz. Hello. Um, which would be handy for next week, as I'm literally going to Oz. But um, I think, yeah, because it, it could have been... I, t I know what you mean, that it could have been tonally, like, quite depressing and awful. And actually, it's, it's kind of, A, hopeful and optimistic, and I think that's because I am a hopeful and optimistic person. Um, and also, again, I do think that, can, that book sort of exists with junk, and I think Junk is like a masterpiece that you should all read, by the way. It still feels wonderfully fresh. It's 22 years old, but it still feels incredibly relevant. And, um, and the last thing I wanted to do was kind of step on Melvin's toes or kind of reboot or rework Junk. Um, and so I think gritty, harmless, heroin addict teenagers... It's, it, it's been done. And so examining it through Lex's sort of spectrum and sort of seeing it with this very world-weary, sarcastic, wry take, I suppose it, it's quite me, which is, I think, you know, even when I've been at my most anxious, you know, I've maintained a sense of humour. And, and so I felt I don't see why Lexi can't do the same. Was the one there as well? Did you have a question here too? Uh, did you always have that ending planned out, or did you kind of plan it at the start and then it changed? Or In Clean? Yeah, in Clean, sorry. Um, yeah, I do. The ending is always pretty much done. I think it's like Philip Pullman in Clockwork. You have to know where a story's going, otherwise it might go its own way. Um, 
And yeah, I did. I think I certainly, I don't want to give any spoilers to people who haven't read it, but I certainly knew where she was going to end up. And, but similarly, you'll note there's kind of two endings. There's a bit of a false ending to the book. And certainly there was a conversation with my editor, was, do you think actually this is where the book should end? And I was like, no, 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 no. I think I will get crucified if we end the book with the big happy ending, kind of with the big, with the kiss. You know, if we end the book with the kiss, um, I think we're going to get in trouble here. And I think actually this is not a book about the kiss. It's a book about Lexi. And actually, I think it was about understanding there was a future for Lexi beyond that kiss. Because there were times in that book where Lexi fully admits she can't even see a future for herself. All she sees is Kurt. And actually, I think that the nicer thing, and again, I won't say what the ending is, but that by the time you get to the end, Lexi can see an ending. And that's more important, I think. Or indeed... Uh, a very long, a long, happy life. Yes. yes. Do we have another question? Don't be shy. <laughs> God, you've probably been asked this hundreds of times. But um, do you have any inv- advice for people who want to get into writing? I mean, unfortunately, the, advi- the advice I, I tend to give is kind of the same advice that literally every other author gives, which is to read lots, read good books and bad books. So you can work out what it is your taste is and what it is you like, um, and don't be scared. Don't be scared to write about your experience. And I think, you know, I never even realised I was doing this with Holler Pike, but I was really drawing from stuff from my adolescence. Um, and when I do my first story workshops, you know, the kids that I write with are. Um, from usually from quite underprivileged homes in sort of southwest London, kind of sort of sort of the Putney kind of area. And they were all writing these books like set in New York and Hollywood and like Arizona. I'm like, have you been to Arizona? And like, no, but I've seen it in films. I was like, well maybe, just an idea. Perhaps we could write it somewhere you've been. And what's really cool is, you know, especially given the makeup of London, you've got lots of refugee kids there who've come from all kinds of amazing places. And I'm like, oh, my God, I have never been to Serbia. Please tell me about Serbia, kind of. And then as soon as they start doing that, it kind of brings a realism and a rawness to their stories. I mean, I'm not saying you have to write autobiography, but draw on the things that you do know and it becomes very real. And even if you are setting it, you know, in some like wild science fiction landscape, I still think there are ways to bring in, you know, and I always say one of the questions I always ask is what's the best takeaway near you? And it's something you can always answer. Take that, you know, tell me about the chow mein in space. You know, and immediately it just becomes way more real. And I think that's something, especially with young writers, it doesn't have to be Hogwarts, it doesn't have to be Twilight, it doesn't have to be Hunger Games. You know, it can be the chicken shop in Putney. And it's just as good as Hogwarts. But watch out with Clapham. No, well, that's me. The reason that everybody laughs, and my publicist, Emily, is her friends keep sending her, like, screenshots of the Clapham bit. Because if you've been to Clapham, that's what it's like. So, I mean, yeah, write what you know. I know it's crap writing advice, but it kind of works. Well, I think on that note, Clapham is a good 
good subject for writing. Sorry if anybody's come from Clapham. <laughs> Sorry if like the mayor of Clapham is here or something. <laughs> Not any more left earlier in a bit of a high dungeon. Yeah. Um, I think we'll have to bring that th- this this session to an end. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. That was absolutely fascinating. And we're going to uh, make a short exit out to the signing uh, bookshop next door. So before we do that, will you join me in an enormous vote of thanks to the fabulous Juno Dawson. Thank you. And thank you as well. That's great. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.